Thanks for listening to the Trial Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Greg Oliver. Greg is a man of many talents and interests, a wrestling aficionado going back to Hulkamania days, co-founder of the Slam Wrestling website, and author of multiple sports biographies, including the new memoir on former Blue Jays skipper John Gibbons, the author of a deep dive into Canadian entertainment legend Billy Van, and a journalist whose piece on Dwayne The Rock Johnson's fractured group of half-siblings was published in the venerable Sports Illustrated Online. Welcome, Greg, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Thanks for having me on the show, Andrew. Uh, I live in um, Toronto in the West End, uh, though I grew up uh, in Kitchener. So Toronto was always a destination, but here I am. uh, I've lived here longer in in Toronto now than it ever did in Kitchener. So this is definitely home. Great. Well, this leads us right into an introduction on you, your background, and an overview of your career as a journalist and author. As you say, Kitchener kid, why don't you take us from there? The short version is, you know, I had a pretty normal life in Kitchener. Uh, you know, we went, did all the schooling. I, I got into pro wrestling early, uh, but we were always big sports fans in the house. Uh, my brother is a competitive basketball coach. He coached at uh, Queens and then the University of Windsor, and now he coaches coaches with basketball immersion. So sports are always a big deal in my house, uh, even if mom doesn't under, didn't understand it. And, you know, I got into wrestling and it it coincided with getting an, an Apple IIe computer and we had a desktop publishing program to play with and everybody was talking about it in the schoolyard. So Hulkamania ran wild on me and allowed me to start writing. And it was by, certainly by grade eight, uh, I knew I'd be a writer. In high school, I actually got a job at the Kitchener-Waterloo Record. Uh, not that it's called that anymore. It's the Waterloo Region and Record. But uh, I did overnights there for a little while. So I really got to see how the news business worked and I had zero doubts I would get into what was then Ryerson University for journalism, and sure enough, uh, I got in, I got my choice, and life changed from there when I moved to Toronto. And, and when you got to Toronto, is that when you joined the Toronto Sun? I it Well, after my first year at Ryerson, which is, of course, TMU for everybody needs to know that now, yeah, I got a summer job at the Toronto Sun, and I was there for a good 10 years. Uh, I think I did... Well, I counted once, I think I did 16 different jobs at the Sun itself, everywhere from working in the library to advertorial to running copy to, you know, writing stories. I worked on the graphics desk, uh, but I never worked in sports. That's the one thing I can say I didn't do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but when the website started up, canoe.ca, um, <laughs> basically I just went to one of my bosses and said, when you go, I want to go. And that's how I ended up being one of the guys in the forefront of, the internet. And I was lucky because I was one of the few guys that they'd hired to work at the website who'd actually worked at the newspaper. So I knew where a lot of the people were, like who to contact with things. So I, I soon became what we called the chief grunt. Yeah. Uh, I, I wasn't management by any means, but I, I certainly knew my stuff and, and who to contact for the right things we needed to, to get work done. And that canoe suite of sports content was probably, would you say ahead of its time or kind of on the leading edge? Oh God, yeah, they 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 totally decimated it, and I'm not too thrilled about it all. But what are you going to do? We had some amazing content. The idea that you'd have a portal for all your hockey news, all in one spot, it just had gotten gutted so many times over the years. It's a shell of its former self. But we had original content, like it was aspirational. It's like we are going to win national newspaper awards here with what we're going to do, and there were some 
big projects that, you know, we're at least in the conversation for those kind of things, but, uh, that's long gone. It was definitely way ahead of its time. Uh, I'm fortunate to be friends with many of the people that were involved with that. Uh, especially, uh, Wayne Parrish, uh, who is our chief elf Lord is what we called him. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I still work a little bit with him too, with the sport collection and the sport gallery down in the, the Tiller district. Present day, hot off the presses. Let's talk about your memoir, written with former Blue Jays manager John Gibbons, called Gibby, Tales of a Baseball Lifer. What has the feedback been so far from both the public and the book reviewing media? It's funny because, again, I I worked at The Sun for so long, and my wife wrote for the the book section there for a while. There isn't really as much of a book reviewing community as there used to be, right? There's a little bit that ends up in the newspapers, a little bit online, but so much of it is just your reviews that people post on Amazon or they... They put out their personal tweets, and, and that's sort of what passes for review these days. Anyway, by and large, it's been great. Everybody says it's like sitting down and having a beer with Gibby. Yeah, in this case, it'd be Miller Lite because he's sponsored by Miller Lite on his the Gibby podcast now. But yeah, he was great to work with. It's a really easygoing memoir. I briefly thought about trying to do something more challenging or a little bit more interesting than your traditional biography, but... Um, my editor at ECW Press, Michael Holmes, talked me out of it and said, just, you know, go go the, go the straight route. And in the end, that was the right way to do it. It, it. You can't really tell the story of Gibby becoming the manager of the Jays and so beloved if you don't start at the beginning and talk about how he got into baseball, which happened to be in Newfoundland Labrador. Uh, and, and then from there, you know, all the traveling he did and all the sacrifices these guys make to, to play professional baseball and then coach and manage it. Well, please take us behind the scenes. What was the process of capturing Gibby's stories? Was he literally lying on a couch uh, sharing his stories with you? Absolutely. So I, I went down to San Antonio, you know, stayed nearby, and he'd pick me up every morning, and we'd go for breakfast and uh, chat a little bit. And then we'd go back to his place where um, Christy, his wife, and then uh, his um, stepson, Jack, would, would basically try to be as quiet as they could as you know, Gibby laid on the couch and told stories. We drank water mainly. I mean, it wasn't a big beer drinking kind of thing, but that, that was the idea, right? You really captured it. And so then I went back and transcribed it all. And then you go back to him having sort of had a shell put together, like pieces of what you really want to have, you know, asked him more questions and followed up. And I talked to some of his old teammates or his old roommates or his old management people, like JP Ricciardi, who said, if you, you can't call this book anything else but Gibby. So, you know, when you got a couple of uh, good endorsements like that, it, it really worked great. I understand Gibby was not exactly high tech. Uh, what was the process of you sending draft pages to him for uh, editing? That's exactly it. So we wrote the book, you know, ECW Press was happy with it. There's always going to be questions and things to follow up on. Gibby really wasn't all that tech savvy, but he knows how to use his, his cell phone. So exactly what he would do is I would email him the chapter he would print it out on his computer. He would read it. He would make notes in pen on the sheets themselves. And then he would take a phone, like take his phone out and take a picture of that, that page and send me another photo of a written page where he had made notes. If it was more than just, you know, a comma here or, or change this guy's name. So yeah, if he wanted to change the whole paragraph, he would write it out longhand and send me a picture of it. And then I'd have to uh, decipher it and put it together. I'm fortunate his writing was pretty good though. So that made it quite appropriate. A lot of the 
little changes were things like, oh, my mom's going to read this. I guess I better take out the swear word kind of thing. <laughs> good. He's still a good mama's boy. He is. And I, I did get to spend a little bit of time with his mom, Sally, uh, when I was in San Antonio. And uh, she actually just sent me a wonderful little uh, thank you letter um, for, for writing the book about her son, which was really sweet. Well, uh, on that note, Greg, uh, we all think of Gibby as the proverbial Texan. And he does, of course, live in San Antonio. But his roots, in fact, go back to Boston, Massachusetts. Yeah, he, his family's all from Boston. But, I mean, he really is a child of the United States because his, his dad worked for the Air Force. So they were stationed, you know, up in Maine for a bit. He was born in Montana. You know, his dad later worked in Washington uh, after Gibby was an adult. Um, you know, but it was Houston and San Antonio where they spent the most amount of time. And it was actually kind of rare for somebody in the military to stay that long in, in sort of one close location. But he was a very specialized guy who studied um, eyesight. And so he developed some of the things that fighter pilots would wear to improve their eyesight, things like that. So it was kind of, it was really neat to hear that kind of military story because often you do associate it with, you know, wartime or combat. Whereas here we've got a guy who's a scientist, uh, you know, studied optometry, but then ended up doing all this. And it was, it was really great. And, and Gibby had a lot of appreciation for his dad, but his dad was a really strict guy. And I think that carried over a little bit to how he managed and certainly the people, you know, it was a different time back then, right? You got, uh, people grew up differently. They, they expected a little bit more out of their kids. There might be a little bit of, you know, corporal punishment, spanking and stuff that goes on. Um, but yeah, you can't do that anymore as a major league manager. These guys make way more money than you. You're replaceable. The players uh, get a lot more of the say. Well, it's very interesting to me, Greg. You know, Gibby never won anything in his two separate stints as the Blue Jays manager, although there were, of course, two trips to the ALCS in 2015 and 2016. Thus, he's not the type of sports hero that usually gets a biography done in them. Yet Gibby is beloved. Why is he so beloved, and why did he make a good target as writing a memoir? Well, I, I, I do need to say he did win a bunch of things over the years. Um, you know, he's got two World Series rings, one from the 86 Mets, where he was the backup catcher and a big part of that team, if not a player. And then he got a, a ring from 2021 with the Atlanta Braves, where he was part of the scouting team. Uh, and he won a couple things in the minors, too. So there are some victories along the way. But you're right. Here in Toronto, he became a beloved figure just partly because it was his character. He was just so different than, say, Aceto Gaston, who was also from San Antonio, coincidentally. But Cito was a lot more quiet, reserved kind of guy, and Gibby would be out there arguing with the managers. He'd be cracking wise in his press conferences, and, and certainly he loved the media and having them back. Say, he didn't love love the media, but he liked having the media around and, and chatting with them. He was just a character, and he still is this day. I, I mean, just a couple of events that I've seen him at. We went to the Toronto Public Library, which hosted him, and, you know, the place was almost packed and there'd be people buying, you know, five copies to get signed for different people. And he wanted to have a little chat with everybody. And it's like, Gibby, the library's closing. We have to kind of keep this line moving, dude. Well, I had a, a great chat with Gibby on this podcast recently, and I found the same thing. He's just such an engaging guy. And Greg, I did want to ask you, of course, you're based in Toronto. He was up in Toronto recently for the book launch process. You mentioned the Toronto Library. Were there any other interesting kind of events or signings that you were a part of? And, and have you enjoyed the process of the book launch? 
it's actually, there's been a little bit less than I anticipated. Uh, Gibby did a few things here and I didn't get to go to the Costco thing. I mean, you don't have to go. You're sitting around a lot. The Toronto Public Library one was special to me because I've always, the library's been really important to me over the years, doing research and interlibrary loans and spending time there. Even back when I was at Ryerson, they used to do a library newspaper, essentially, that they put out. And I, they, they, I had a little quote in there or something and a picture of me working, sitting in the library. So the library's been really important to me. But uh, there will be more things with Gibby. He was supposed to be here this coming weekend for the Sports Card Collectible show, but he ended up with COVID and oh, his wife got COVID. So um, he's just not able to travel right now. And it's a real bummer for me uh, because just like those guys that bought five copies, uh, there's a lot of people in my life that want a copy of the book and it's even better if I can get it signed for them. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you also about the process you mentioned. You know, Gibby's kind of famous for arguing with the ums. Internet true or false? You sat down together with Gibby and watched a tape of literally every one of his ejections while managing the Blue Jays. <laughs> we didn't get through them all. It, w- it was fun, though, because it was the last night I was there, and we'd done, instead of going out for dinner or anything like that, we had a nice sort of uh, meal that we brought in and could sit around and really just chat and just hang out. And Christy had never seen this YouTube video that somebody had put up of all of his ejections. So we started watching it, and I think we maybe got halfway through it. Um, it is kind of repetitive. I mean, for lack of a better word to say, like he just gets ejected again and again. But the context and part of what we added to the book is some of the details about why he got ejected, you know, whether he was fighting balls and strikes, whether he was upset about a, a play at the plate or whether he was upset, of, you know, about something else. There's all these different reasons he got ejected. He's quite proud that he's got ejected that often and he likes telling a couple of times it came up in the book, just, you know, where he was talking about sitting in the back, been ejected, got his feet up, having a beer or a glass of wine, and uh, just enjoying watching the game instead of the stress there. Well, he's such a player's manager, and I think that's why he's so beloved. But, Greg, now that you got to know him much better, please share with the listeners something that maybe they may be surprised to know about John Gibbons, the person. What kind of resonated with you? That's a good question. Um what really surprised, it wasn't, it, maybe not a surprise, but you don't always associate managers as being really great people, persons. As in, he really tried to keep up with his other players, not every player, but a lot of the players he liked. He would know a little bit about their kids, about what they're doing now, all these kind of things that maybe wasn't even available on the internet kind of thing. Uh, and so he, Obviously, he spends a little bit of time talking to them, sending them a text, whatever, just catching up with people. Uh, and again, that's something you not everybody player does. And and, and certainly with my years in wrestling, uh, the wrestlers are terrible at that. They often don't know what each other are doing. The hockey players, it's usually a lot more related to events, right? So there's NHL old-timer luncheons occasionally here in the city or golf events or whatever, that's maybe where they catch up with each other. So it's a little bit more in person, but Gibby's definitely a guy out there sending little texts to his buddies, or if somebody has a good game, he'll send a little note, even now if he's not managing. He's just, he has a little bit of a pulse on the game, and that includes a lot of former managers and stuff, right? Like we got um, AJ Hinch's managing the the Tigers now, and so he would probably have sent him a little note about facing the Jays, just a little smart-ass comment. Yeah. That's just who Gibby is. And, you know, Gibby kind of, I think it's a not the correct uh, perception that he's anti-analytics and he just ignores it all. I think he's accepted there's a role for analytics and there's a role for 
what we want to call old school from your gut, knowing that he's still got the skills and abilities. Are you a little shocked that he has not uh, found another role as a major league manager? Yes and no. Uh, I will have to say I do know a little bit more than I'm allowed to talk about. So there were some things that, you know, if if things had broken a bit differently, um, that maybe he would be um, back managing. Maybe not major league level, but back in the mix. Because, you know, you, you sometimes have to make your way back up. And that's part of what got him a lot of respect, too, is jumping down to, you know, coach with the missions. You know, here was a guy who was a major league manager who was happy to go down and, and deal with a lower level minor league team. And, and not everybody's cut out for that. But Gibby's just, he does love the game. And and we when we came up with the subtitle, you know, about baseball lifer, it, it really does suit. Uh, he's He's involved with the game, whether he's, you know, actually on the bench or not. Yeah. Well, it would be good to see him back. One of the players he loved was Josh Donaldson. Now, Josh was the 2015 American League MVP while playing for Gibby. How easy or hard was it to get Josh Donaldson to write the forward to the book? It was It was just tough to get him lined up with his schedule. So it was um, it was ghostwritten. I mean, that's not rare these days. Is You know, I talked to Josh for a little bit about what we, he wanted to say, and then I sent it to him so he could see it, and he approved it. Uh, and, and Gibby was happy with it too. And uh, it's actually really funny because the two forwards that came, of the books that came out at the same time, because I had another book that came out called The Woman Who Would Be King, the Medusa story with a wrestler named uh, Deborah Medusa Michelli, who was also a monster truck driver. But her forward was similar in that the story that they told was in the book, but it was told from a slightly different perspective. So it added a bit of color to it. So Josh Donaldson's telling the story about fighting with Gibby. And then in the book, Gibby tells the same story. And they're told, you know, you can tell that the general thing is the same, but they each have their own take about it. And that, to me, that's fascinating. And that that's real life, right? There's always going to be his side and, and his side. And then somewhere in, the, in between is what the reality is. Well, that's great to get the kind of he said, she said, and uh, perception's reality. And it's good to get the, the common truth of the two stories. Absolutely. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We've got Bernie Nichols, Donovan Bailey, Wes Hall, Paul Reiser, and Terry O'Reilly. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Greg, of all your close to two dozen book projects, you're perhaps most passionate about your self-published 2020 biography, Who's the Man? Billy Van. Now to you, Billy Van is an icon, an unparalleled television star, who you and I actually watched for years and years on Hamilton's CHCH-TV on the hilarious House of Frightenstein, among other shows. It's been said that Billy Van was one of the most talented performers ever and that he was great at everything except being himself. Greg, who is Billy Van, and why was he important enough to write a book about? Where do you even start? Well, Billy Van Evera, part of a you know showbiz family, uh, grew up in Toronto's West End, sort of Dovercourt area, and just a fascinating guy. The project was at least a dozen years in the works. Stacy Case, who's you know, the uh, the whiff in there in this case, he's the guy that really was the one that made it all happen. We had talked about it, you know, years and years ago when I started down the road on it. We took a little bit of a break and I didn't think it'd be 12 years. And the pandemic sort of came along at a decent time for 
this, you know, of all things. And so there was some time to be able to work on it. And the fact is that as I dove in, I realized just even more how talented he was, right? I loved him on Party Game. I loved him on Frightenstein and, and all these, you'd see him show up on Littlest Hobo or whatever, right? This guy that you knew. Oh, look, that's Billy Van again. And, but then you start doing the real work and, and realizing, you know, he'd be a, been a talent his entire life, you know, the early days of the CBC and, and the early invasion of Canadians really going down to the, to Hollywood with Alan Bly and, and Chris Beard and those kind of guys. And that really started to set up what we know as, well, I mean, just how easy it is for Canadians to get down there. It wasn't the case sort of before that. And he's just, amazingly talented guy but yeah he just lived a messed up life he just could never seem to be comfortable with himself and these are all things you wouldn't know until you started delving into it and really talked to his family uh, a couple of his ex-wives and uh, you know those who worked with him because they all saw this professional billy van that showed up on set delivered made them laugh and then went home and and a lot of them didn't know a lot of these they're not deep dark secrets but it was certainly a guy who's not necessarily secure in who he was. Why don't you talk a little more about the hilarious house of Frankenstein? How many characters did Billy Van play, and does that include the uh, gorilla suit? <laughs> he played just about every character. It's almost easier to say, you know, who he didn't play. I mean, he wasn't super hippie, and he wasn't Igor, and he wasn't any of the puppets, and basically everything else he did. Uh, and he also wasn't Guy Guy Big, who was the uh, little person that that portrayed him. That was. Initially, the whole plan for the Hillers House Frightenstein was they're going to have this really short, uh, they used the term midget back then, of course, a little little person who was going to be the count. Uh, they realized that wasn't going to work because they couldn't shoot it properly. And so Billy Van then became, you know, Count Frightenstein. And, and it just grew from there. And he just had an amazing ability to, to really become those characters. And they shot 130 episodes within roughly nine months. It's an incredible accomplishment. Billy had a nervous breakdown during it because it was so much work. And he would in, in totally inhabit those characters, right? He would be Griselda. And that would be maybe a week of shooting. And he'd have to go in every day and put on all the prosthetics and get all dressed up and just do shot after shot after shot. And as hard as that is, that one at least was sitting down mostly. Whereas like the gorilla cons costume you mentioned, I mean, they're... He's doing pratfalls again and again and again. Those kind of things add up over time. Uh, it was an amazing piece of work by everybody involved. And as much of it was his masterwork, it was hardly the most important thing he ever did. It was really only a fraction of his life. Uh, but perhaps most well-known, and certainly one thing I remember from that show was Vincent Price. How did Vincent Price get involved in Hilarious House of Frightenstein? And why did Billy Van never actually meet Vincent Price? It was a bit of a fluke. I mean, when, when Mitch Mark, Markowitz and his brother Riff, uh, Riff is mainly the guy behind it, but Mitch is the one who's been taking a lot of the credit lately because Riff is just living his life down in Palm Springs and doesn't want to promote anything. But yeah, they they made a pitch to CHCH. Oh, we got this idea for this kid's show. We think it'll be a lot of fun. And they said, yeah, well, we want a bigger star. And so they said, uh, okay, we'll figure out who we get. And they called Vincent Price and, and unbeknownst to them, he'd always had the idea that he could do a kid's show. And what they didn't know is that he had a sister who lived in Dundas, Ontario, just outside of Hamilton. So he had reason to come up. He only spent a handful of days up here uh, in Hamilton filming it. And like 
they did with all Billy Vance characters. It was boom, 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 boom. He would just knock off all these little introductions and, and closings. And the guy was, again, a total professional and, uh, you know, bought out cases of beer for the, the staff afterwards and they all loved him. But Billy wasn't shooting those days. In fact, Vincent Price was really near the beginning of the process. And Billy was there to the, the very bitter end as they were trying to figure out how this whole thing was going to work. So, yeah, they never did meet there. They did meet down the road on uh, another um, at a show in Hollywood. Billy's uh, primary paid work in the USA was for Colt 45 malt liquor, not a speaking part. And eventually he was replaced by none other than uh, Lando Calrissian, Mr. Billy D. Williams. But uh, was Colt 45, it seems like a, not the right mix of... Uh, promoter and product, but that's, I guess, how he paid the bills. I don't know if it was, I mean, Colt 45 at some point, I think pivoted their target market. And I think that was partly Billy D. Williams, right? He came in there and we, we perceived it as a different product than it was when, when Billy Van was the, the silent pitch man who never said anything. But yeah, that was his bread and butter. He made more money doing that than just about anything else in his career. Um, he was forever grateful uh, to the people who, who got him there. More people probably saw him do that. I mean, Sonny and Cher was really his biggest role. Mm-hmm. And do you want to talk a little about that, what Billy did on the Sonny and Cher show and the connection, I guess, to uh, Murray Langston, the the uh, unknown comic? <laughs> well, there's so many connections. I mean, that's the whole thing is that you end up, it's about who you know, right, in Hollywood. And so when Alan Bly, who was a guy he knew in the 19, late 1950s on CBC as a singer, when Alan Bly later, you know, ends up with working with Chris Beard, who, you know, Billy knew from working on Nightcap, they all go down to California. They go, we need some second bananas. We need some guys that can be, you know, doing all these skits with Sonny and Cher, who were talented musicians, but not necessarily talented performers at that point. And they decided to bring down a few people they knew, and one of them was Billy Van. Uh, Murray Langston came around a little bit later, and he's not really part of that Canadian Ness, even though he is Canadian, but he was living down in Hollywood at the time. And he just sort of, you know, did an audition and, and got in sort of a backwards kind of way it was Billy Van got in certainly through all connections. And that got him a, a green card to be able to work down there in the U.S. And it really did change his life because from that point on, he was such a much bigger star. And it's that Canadianness is in us too, right? You see, you perceive somebody as being a bigger star because they're a star in the U.S., and that also speaks to the problems here with the Canadian star system, which became one of Billy's later beefs, right? He ran an actual talent agency and, and tried to promote Canadian talent. And he would always show up for those events, you know, whether it was the Gemini Awards or whatever. He liked being out there and being seen, but he also had appreciation for all the work that the Canadians did making great products that maybe didn't get seen at the same level as Sonny and Jared did. Well, there's a suggestion that uh, Billy Van might have landed a part on the long-running sitcom MASH. What got in the way of what would have been a huge breakthrough for his U.S. career? Yeah, you wonder how he would have fit in there, whatever his character was, because he never really... So he wrote an unpublished autobiography, and it had tons of flaws, and but we had access to it. And so we referenced that a lot. And so he has a throwaway part in there mentioning that. But that kind of idea is that he could have been on that show, but he was had commitments to the Sonny and Cher, and you can't do both, especially when they're on competing networks or whatever it may be, or 
the times just don't work out. And so it's, a, it was a big, what if in his life? Cause that ended up being a long running show. And, uh, yeah, he may have really been a different person at that point. Billy Van is not perhaps as well known during your research, Greg, you found tons of material in the CBC archives. Do you expect all this material is going to come to light? You know, now that we have so many streaming services and so many different ways to see things. God, I wish. No, I, it won't. It won't. It's just, just no monetary value to putting everything up there. The CBC has so much stuff. It's, it's quite insane um, to be able to go back and watch these little sets of things. Uh, even with their gem, you know, program, uh, streaming service, things like that, I just don't see the value in some of those long lost things getting out there. That's just the reality of it. I mean, they don't have the the manpower. And now, of course, we've got, you know, real blowhard politicians saying the CBC shouldn't exist or all this kind of thing. And yet our Canadian entertainment system owes everything to the CBC and how it was built through the years. And as much as Billy worked with, you know, at CTV studios taping things or did stuff out in Hamilton or certainly all the stuff he did with Bizarre, the CBC is still the core of what makes Canadian entertainment uh, great. Uh, I'll, I'll say that much anyway, because yeah, you can get into too much <laughs> politics, right? Well, Greg, let's sidestep into something you just mentioned, Bizarre, a legendary show and an associated legendary comedian, Mr. John Viner. Billy Van was on the Bizarre television show, which ran six seasons, 1980 to 1986. As you just mentioned, it was in fact filmed at CFDO Studios in Scarborough, more specifically the Agent Court area. You are a super fan, as am I, of John Viner. How'd you get a hold of him, and what were your conversations like about Billy Van? This was, when I talked to John Viner, it was a long time ago. It was actually before the Billy Van Project. Um, this was the really early stages of it. And I actually talked to him about a wrestler named Reggie Love. Reggie had lived in, in Hamilton and, and been involved with the entertainment business. And he uh, had been on Bizarre tons of times. And so I really was curious about talking to John Biner about uh, Reggie Love. And so at the end of it, though, we did talk a little bit about Billy Van and what he was like. And I, I sort of wish I'd gone back to John Biner again, you know, a dozen years later to get more about Billy Van. But the fact is, I didn't really need it. Uh, Billy Van and Bizarre was, again, of, of his so many different projects. That's one we remember him a lot from. But again, he was not the star. He was the second banana. He was brought in there as a ringer to make the shows a little bit better. Yeah, John Binder was, you know, a small part of the bigger Billy Van picture, but uh, certainly somebody who appreciated his talent. And he did talk about how he did talk to Billy Van when Billy was... Uh, near his uh, near his end with uh, battles with cancer. I had uh, John Biner on this podcast as well, and I'm sure you shared the experience of just being able to get his stories. What else did you enjoy about your conversations with John Biner outside of your talking about Billy Van? Well, I, it was just that thrill. You're talking to John Biner. I loved the idea that how the wrestlers permeate pop culture and never get the respect. And that, that's been a lot better in recent years than it was then. But I mean... Reggie Love being a good example of somebody you saw in there frequently, he would just come on and do some strongman thing or something like that on Bizarre, and yet we never really appreciated how the wrestlers, you know, had, again, permeated part of our popular culture. And I, I, I guess that's my takeaway. I mean, Biner talked about how Reggie Love always made him laugh, which certainly describes Reggie, and, and I was fortunate to uh, know Reggie Love pretty well. I get to speak at his funeral or celebration of life and all that kind of stuff. So I, I guess 
the entertainers I've talked to through the years, they often do talk about pro wrestlers in very great light because they recognize fellow entertainers and they recognize fellow warriors of the road, right? People that are out there all the time. And it's something your average person probably doesn't understand. You go to your nine to five job, but wrestlers were itinerant warriors, like wandering place to place, a, a lot like entertainers were. Well, let's link up the wrestling and your writing. Greg, you wrote a piece in Sports Illustrated Online about Rocky Johnson, the famous wrestler whose wrestling son is even more famous, that being none other than The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. Rocky Johnson was actually born in Canada and had connections in Toronto. Do you want to explain how you kind of got into this story and where it took you? So the long story short is, yeah, that the whole Johnson clan um, are descended from slaves that ended up in Nova Scotia. And Rocky, as a teenager, came to Toronto, not as described on Young Rock. He didn't necessarily run away. They had family in Toronto. So, you know, he came to Toronto and, and had a place to stay. It wasn't like he was some runaway. He um, ends up, you know, various jobs, tries boxing, all these kind of things. He met, meets his first wife, Una, uh, and at the time he's driving a fish truck. But he also started getting into wrestling after the boxing. Uh, somebody had seen him and said, hey, you should try this. He ended up training down in Hamilton with Jack Wentworth, and all the Hamilton guys there knew him. At one point, Whiffer Billy Watson, the, the greatest Canadian wrestler of all time, sort of took him under his wing and, and wanted to showcase him as partly it's political. Um, you know, look, I have a black friend kind of thing when he's on TV. So he got some early breaks, but he also quickly realized that nobody from Toronto ends up being a star bigger than Whiffer Billy Watson. And so you needed to leave to succeed. And so he ended up, that was part of his discussion with Una. They had two kids together, Curtis and Wanda, and Rocky realized to be a wrestler, he had to leave. So he left and, and started traveling and went out west to Canada, Stu Hart and the Stampede Wrestling and out in Vancouver. Uh, he worked out in the Maritimes where he's from, and so he still had family out there as well. And he traveled and became a big star in California. And right at the very end of his run was the WWF stuff. And, and too often that gets way overblown. He was not a massive star in WWF by any means. He was part of the card, yes, and he was briefly tag team champion with Tony Atlas, but they hated each other. Anyways, so to go back to the other part, one of his other brothers, his youngest brother, is Ricky Johnson, and he has lived in Toronto and, and followed his brother into pro wrestling. I think there's an eight-year difference between them. So at some point, they were tagging together out in Hawaii, where they were Soul Patrol, and Ricky ends up settling in Toronto and ends up doing a lot of local wrestling. And I meet him through my early days as a wrestling writer. And we've been friends ever since. Doesn't mean he doesn't drive me nuts sometimes, but he's a good dude. All this comes along and then The Rock becomes one of the biggest stars in, in history. I was one of the first guys to ever do a wrestling interview, if not the first. He was at Sky Dome. It was 19... What was that 1996, late 1996, they were introducing Tiger Ali Singh, the son of the great Tiger Jeet Singh, uh, to the wrestling world with WWF. And here's this young Rocky Maivia standing in the back. So I did a little interview with him. Little did I know all these years later, I'd, I'd interview him again and again because he developed the character. He became the rock. He became one of the biggest stars in the world. And I got to go to some of those WrestleManias where he was on top. 
again, we fast forward a little bit and Ricky Johnson has a 65th birthday party and I end up meeting, oh, here's my nephew. Here's my nephew. Here's my niece. And it's like, I thought I knew a lot of his family because Rocky Johnson had become you know, somebody I, I had socialized a little bit. He might come up to Toronto and we'd go out and have dinner or have breakfast. You know, we weren't great friends, but we talked on the phone a few times and he'd actually asked me at one point about writing a book. So at this birthday party, he's like, what do you mean this is Rocky's kid? I, I thought I knew Rocky's kid. That's not Wanda. That's not Curtis. And it's not Dwayne. So who is this? So that began the process of starting to unravel, man, there's a lot more going on here. And that I got introduced to the right people and I knew Ricky and then Rocky died sort of out of nowhere. And, and we still don't know all the details exactly what happened, but he's dead and all the funeral happens and the family all knows about four of these other kids that Rocky had nothing ever to do with, which is remarkable in and of itself. Um, there were, there was kids in Nova Scotia, British Columbia. There was one from Southern Ontario, Montreal, like all these people that were across the country that he had left in his wake and never had anything to do with. And then after his funeral, one more came forward through DNA testing. And as much as Rocky had nothing to do with these kids and he only ever talked to a couple of them. And that was only all he ever did was talk to them. They all found each other through social media and sort of found a, a bit of a core in Ricky Johnson and they all became friends. So that was the gist of the story is like, here are Rocky Johnson's forgotten kids, abandoned kids. And yet their half brother is one of the most famous people in the world. We have to be really careful about, cause it's not the rock story at all. Right. It's, it is Rocky Johnson's story and Dwayne has nothing to do with this. And if it's his choice to have nothing to do with them, then it's his choice. Well, uh, on that but, note, Greg, what, what was the response to your piece from the camp of the rock? Because these are now kind of five half siblings, so to speak. The rocks people all knew about the story because sports illustrated wanted to, uh, make sure they knew about it. They didn't get to preview it or anything, but they knew that the story was coming. And I did my little part too, like in the sense that certainly the rock's mom knew about it because she's a friend of mine. So you just gave him a little tip off saying this is going to happen. But as I said, they all knew about these kids beforehand. All the difference is that this is going to be a big sports illustrated story. It really didn't change much for them. It was great for me. It was a great to be in sports illustrated, which I'd read forever, but you know, the story is a story and you sort of move on a little bit. Uh, Lisa Perves, who's one of the kids uh, is a filmmaker and sort of was the public face of the, the siblings. She got a lot of the blowback, but she also got a lot of people saying, thank you for speaking and telling your story about being abandoned because that's our story too. And it's not unique to pro wrestling. However, the lifestyle that they leave live as, as nomads really does help that become a lot more possible where they can go out there and travel and leave kids in their wake for lack of a better way to put it. So yeah, it was, it was a great store to work on. I'm glad I did it. I, uh, wonderful moment in my life, but it, it's changed their lives a little bit too, in the sense that they get to point to that story and go, look, this is our story. And Lisa's working on a documentary about it too. Well, it must've been for you, a, a, an interesting process, preparing a piece for Sports Illustrated online, the fact checking, the editorial process much have been must have been very rigorous. Did you kind of enjoy that process? Enjoy is maybe not the quite word. Uh, 
you get a little frustrated and you sort of want to push go. Like it was a tough call because I run a wrestling site. Why didn't we want to run it at slamwrestling.net? And the fact is I knew it was a bigger story than that. And I wanted bigger play and we got it. So, I mean, it, the payoff was there, but it was also like the frustration that I can have that story up in, in two hours if I wanted. So there were a lot of fact checking. There was a lot of going back and forth and let's find the extra DNA test that we didn't have. And let's make sure this T is crossed or whatever it was. And much credit to Adam Durson and, and the staff at, uh, Sports Illustrated, they did a great job and I learned a lot through the process. And that's from a guy who's edited, you know, 40, 50 books and done all these other things too. It was just, it was a different process for sure. And, and knowing that they wanted to, that they'd already told The Rock about it too, meant that there was a little bit of this, not worry exactly, but there was a little bit of concern how things are going to all shake out. And when you talk about process, Greg, on the kind of business side of things, I'm interested to get your feedback on all the books you've done, you chose to publish Who's the Man, Billy Van, as self-published. Now that you've been through the whole process, how would you, I guess, compare and contrast using a big-time publisher versus self-publishing, and would you do it again? <laughs> There's a lot to unpack in that. Uh, ECW Press has been great, and and they're not a giant publisher, right? They're not like HarperCollins kind of thing. They still have that little bit of mom-and-pop feel, even if it's not the same things that, um, you know, the same people owning it that did when it started, but they're great people. I've been fortunate to have the same editor forever and Michael Holmes, he believes in me. He's been a big part of it. So from that perspective, it's great with Gibby. We tried to shop it around a little bit. I'm not ashamed to admit, I was hoping to get a different publisher, if only for the experience of working with different people. Right. And, and it, cause I don't think the payday would have been all that different. And that didn't happen. So we ended up with ECW Press. And again, they've done a great job. They managed to find a great cover, good editing, all that kind of stuff. But because I'd worked at a publisher as I export classic books, and I've helped a few other people edit books and publish books, it wasn't that big a stretch for me to do my own with, with Who's the Man, Billy Van. We had talked to a couple of people about it, including ECW, and we just decided to go ahead and do it ourselves. There's pluses and minuses to it. You, the the reaction is immediate. You get it right away. Uh, you have it out there. But I also have, you know, cartons of books still sitting in my basement. You know, partly that was pandemic, right? You didn't burn out there selling a lot. Uh, and now it, it's it just needs to find more of its audience and we'll, we'll keep working on it. But yeah, self-publishing is so easy compared to what it used to be. We used to call it Vanity Press, right? You've paid somebody to do a book. Now you can have a book out tomorrow. I did, when my father-in-law died last March, we found poems that he had written and never published. And he'd been an English teacher and all these things. So, you know, my son and I just sat down and went through and tried to find what we thought were the final versions of poems. And we just printed out a chapbook, you know, and did it through Amazon and, and ordered enough copies to give to friends. I mean, is that not the basis of what great and easy self-publishing is these days? Well, it's amazing how the barriers as entry have dropped. And as you say, it's a lot easier to, to make your dreams a reality. Now, the Gibby book and the Medusa book are your newest books. They're just the tip of the iceberg in terms of your catalog. Greg, where can listeners get your books and where can they best follow you? Everything's at uh, oliverbooks.ca. And there's links there to my socials, the Twitter and Instagram. I don't use that much. And but yeah, I'm, I'm definitely out there a lot with slamwrestling.net. 
that's where people generally associate me with the most. Uh, I'm out there, I'm, I'm writing stories, I'm editing, and I'm just almost the public face of it, though I'm not the only guy obviously involved. It's just sometimes that's what happens, right? If you're the guy out there hustling the most, that's what people associate you with the most. But yeah, it's been a wonderful ride doing all these different kind of books, wrestling and hockey books and the Billy Van. And, and I've got another book that I'm working on that's got nothing to do with sports and nothing to do. It was just a whole different project. And I love those challenges, right? If, if we keep doing the same thing again and again, you don't, um, you don't grow as a writer. And that's the thing I can definitely say, certainly with the Medusa book, I had to grow a ton with the writer and just keep at it really, uh, it's, it's a wonderful job, but I'm also should credit my wife and my son. They're supportive and appreciative of what I've done, but I couldn't do it without my wife. Who's got a good job because writing doesn't always pay very well. <laughs> well, everybody's success comes from the team. So it's great to hear you got a strong team. Greg, I want to thank you for your time today, talking about Gibby and Bazaar and John Biner and Billy Van and Rocky Johnson. And I want to wish you continued success on your next project. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. And good luck with the podcast. You got some good names that come on here. So that speaks well to you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And to the listeners, on behalf of Greg Oliver, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.